listening to In Tune, a podcast series featuring equity research analysts from BMO Capital Markets. Our shows explore key emerging themes, trends, and issues which are important to our institutional clients globally. Blockchain, crypto assets, miners, there is a lot there. And regardless how you view the landscape of crypto, today's podcast will bring a new lens to it. I'm Camilla Sutton, MD in Equity Research, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by my colleague Deepak Kozel, MD, Equity Research Technology. Deepak, welcome. Thank you, Camilla. Happy to be here. I'm looking forward to hear the journey you're about to take us on today in our Intune podcast. So let's kick it off here. Right to the heart of crypto. What are the key concepts listeners need to understand? That's a great question. Um, you know, when I talk to investors, it, the question is, is it a scam? Is it digital gold? Is it for real? You know, my view has always been, if you understand the technology, you can actually start to understand how it's valuable and, and even start to think about investing in it. So cryptocurrencies, tokens, stable coins, NFTs, DeFi, they're all digital assets and they're powered by an underlying technology innovation called blockchain. And so the, the key things you need to understand about blockchain, first, blockchains are peer-to-peer networks and they enable us to own and transfer value digitally without the need for an intermediary or a central authority to establish trust between whoever I trade value with. So today we use centralized systems. Uh, we transfer money to each other and we trust the banks to keep track of that account ledger and keep track of everybody's accounts. Um, we also trade stocks. Um, we trust clearing houses to reconcile and custody our trades and hold our stocks. Bitcoin was the first to create decentralized open source digital asset that we can trust. It allows you to transfer money in a trusted, reliable way on a peer-to-peer basis without a bank to clear it. And you can trust the system so that not just anyone can come in and print their own money or copy and paste you know, a Bitcoin from one wallet to another. And when the market and technologists looked under the hood, with Bitcoin, they discovered blockchain. And blockchain was coined as the to refer to the process that makes it all work. Um, in more simple terms, it's also been referred to as a distributed ledger, uh, but that's the underlying technology that makes Bitcoin work. And that's the fundamental technology of innovation here. And the second part of that is it, it relies on existing technologies and it's open source. So it relies on open source peer-to-peer networking. So if you think of this distributed ledger, the peer-to-peer network allows everyone to see the ledger It exists on all points of the network, so there are no single points of failure. Uh, It uses cryptography to encrypt the ledger so that it can't be tampered with and so that nobody's accounts can be doctored and changed. And then it uses something very interesting, and that's the application of game theory. And this ensures that the actors that validate and write to this ledger, and this is a function performed by the miners, have a shared invested interest to keep the ledger accurate. And so they perform the function that a centralized authority like a bank or a clearinghouse would perform in a traditional network. And this is all done in a distributed, open, global way. And, and that's the fundamental innovation behind blockchain. It, you know, it's a technology that's at a ver- very early stage. But if you can reduce intermediaries, if you can reduce opacity, and you can reduce single points of failure, um, you can make networks much more efficient and much more reliable. And, and that's, you know, inherently uh, and intrinsically valuable. Um, but it's also very early stage, so, so it, it will take time for this to become mainstream. It requires a significant degree of technology maturity. And, and of course, you know, given that it touches on financial markets, it does require a high degree of regulatory uh, involvement and maturity um, before it can become mainstream. 
Deepak, everything you've just explained makes a lot of sense. You've also piqued my interest a bit here, but could you walk me through a couple of use cases? Okay, certainly. And, and, and you know, I get this question a lot from investors. Um, the easiest way to think about use cases is to ask yourself, think of in terms of distributed ledger. What does this distributed ledger, ledger record? And what application does an underlying blockchain network enable? So when we think of the basic currencies like Bitcoin, Litecoin, Monero, even, even Dogecoin, the distributed ledger in the blockchain records the account balances and liabilities that allow you to you know, transfer value from one person to another or store it in your account. When you think of a stable coin, for example, the distributed ledger records the issuance of a digital asset, the stable coin, and that's pegged to the value of a real asset like the US dollar or gold. You know, the SEC kind of likens this to, to chips that you get when you go to a casino. You have a house that gives you a, a casino chip for your US dollar, and then you can use that casino chip pegged to a US dollar to play in, in that casino or in, in that world. So likewise, you can think of, of decentralized finance. You know, these are applications of dis distributed ledgers or blockchains to provide decentralized financial services like lending and borrowing and trading, again, with no central authority or intermediaries involved. And then you can extend this further to, to the concept of ownership and governance. And here's where we get to NFTs. So NFTs have become certificates of authenticity for digital art ownership. Um, but you can extend this concept to IP rights. You know, if you can manage IP rights, whether that's music or video or art through, through a blockchain, then you can ensure that it can't be tampered with. It's open for everyone to see. And you can use that network as a method to provide transfer of payments back to the IP owner. And, you know, industries are experimenting with this concept in terms of supply chain provenance, land ownership, um, fractional ownership of, of property. Um, so there's a, a growing number of use cases. In that. And, and I guess what I can say about use cases, and this is really important about blockchain, is the technologies become generalized. And this is where the concept of smart contracts come in. So contracts in blockchain can be stored as a distributed system where the terms and conditions of the contract can be governed and automated using computer code. And this has enabled blockchain technology to be applied to all these various different applications like stablecoins and DeFi and NFTs. And, and the analogy that I would give to that, it's like, you know, we have a contract with our power companies today where we, we pay for our power through the banks and the power company keeps our electricity on. You know, in theory, a power company could create a blockchain network to do that, that cuts out the banks, where we pay the, the power company directly with a power token and the smart contract would be the automation. The power company gets the token payment and our power stays on. The power company doesn't get the token or payment and they turn our power off. And it would all be automated and governed by software. And it would have this blockchain level of trust so that we don't need banks or intermediaries in between that transaction network. So I use the power coin analogy uh, as an example of how a power company can connect directly with consumers and potentially disintermediate banks. But I think it's important to also mention that this blockchain technology can be applied in centralized ways uh, by traditional banks and intermediaries that could potentially face disruption from this technology to actually compete with it and improve their own process and services. And, and a good example is, is in our own business um, for equity trading. You know, when client trades in equity, there's a complex system of infrastructure, including centralized settlement, intermediaries, and custodians that make it all just work, but the trade doesn't actually settle for, for two or three days. These, you know, exchanges and brokers and intermediaries can all make use of this blockchain technology, not the cryptocurrency, but the underlying peer-to-peer -peer network technology and the cryptography to create a private blockchain network to improve their own efficiency, to bring that time to settlement of a stock trade instantly. 
And that would reduce double reconciliation. It would reduce the amount of manual labor that's required for checking and setting up systems. And that efficiency can be captured in value within traditional enterprises like banks, clearing houses, custodians, and the like to, to make use of this technology. You know, a good example is Visa or MasterCard, the credit card companies. They are starting to look at ways to embrace underlying blockchain technology to improve their own systems and efficiencies so they can potentially um, improve their own businesses. Stable coins have, have really opened the eyes of central banks to look at how central bank digital currencies could potentially improve you know, traditional financial systems. So this is not just about a new ecosystem that runs on cryptocurrencies, a new asset class. It's a technology that can equally apply to traditional financial services and systems and transfers and storage of value in making those existing systems more efficient. And, you know, dis- disintermediation isn't necessarily an in- endgame, but certainly automation, efficiency, and cost savings are, are also significant benefits of this technology in, in traditional organizations. And-, and what's interesting is, and I get this question a lot, distributed ledgers, cryptocurrencies, you know, why do we need all these tokens? Why do we need cryptocurrencies and blockchains? Can't we have um, decentralized systems without these? When they are decentralized, the token or the cryptocurrency or the coin is an essential piece of a blockchain and it serves the function of capturing value and incentivizing the actors and the miners on the network to be honest. So it's essentially a forced commodity uh, that you need to use to use the underlying application of the blockchain. The supply of that, you know, in the case of Bitcoin and many others, is, is artificially constrained to capture the value of demand for the application. So there's a lot of there and, and, and I'd like to unpack that if I may. And, and a good analogy to do that is, is with a subway token. You know, historically, We've had, you know, a subway system, a public transit system, and to ride it, you could buy a token. And um, that token is, you know, it's worth the value of a ride, right? And the reason the subway uses a token or MyRiad, you know, they, they, it was before digital payments and it was enabled them to, to quickly put people through turnstiles without having to convert, you know, and break up their dollars and cents. But imagine a subway that constrained the supply of that token. The more that people ro- rode the subway and demanded that token, the more the value of that token could go up. And then over time, you know, as that token appreciated in value, you wouldn't need as many tokens to ride the subway. And then perhaps you can still convert that token back to US dollars if you had too many of the tokens or they've risen in value so much that you could, you know, make an investment return on them. So you can start to see how tokens, cryptocurrencies, coins, they're not that different from stocks. And, and in my view, they really just capture value at a different level. So the analogy here is consumers value products that they buy and companies capture that in revenue and profit. And the stocks of those companies represent a share in that profit and an ownership of the company. Investors ask me, well, what's the revenue for a blockchain application? And I think you have to, to change the way of thinking. It's consumers value the blockchain networks that they use, but that value is captured in the price of the token or the coin or the cryptocurrency, essentially the commodity. And that commodity represents a right to use the underlying application that serves that use case and the right, you know, the ability to trade that commodity for another commodity on an exchange and the ability to capture a price appreciation of that commodity if the demand for that commodity goes up and then that serves as a a potential investment. Wow. So the future is definitely interesting, but what does the crypto market really look like today? That's a great question. So you can start to think with all these use cases and all these um, cryptocurrencies out there, how do we make sense of it? You know, it really is like a, a new economy. We'll call it the blockchain economy or the crypto economy. It's very similar to the internet economy. And, you know, you can make an analogy again to a traditional economy. Think of two cities. So when we connect two cities, we can connect the cities with a road 
And if we connect the cities with the road and cars, the economies will start to grow. And then you can invest in the restaurants and the hotels. You can invest in the road builders and the car manufacturers. You can capture the value of, of this road network by investing in oil and gas, which is a commodity that powers cars. In a similar way, you know, the internet's evolved. It's a, it's a network or a, a way of networking that changes the way we transfer and store information. And it's led to an explosion of new applications uh, and, and an e-commerce economy that is powered by this network. The way I see blockchain it's, it's a, and cryptocurrency is, is as a new economy. It's changed the way we store and, and transfer value, similar to, to what the internet did to information. And, and the world is just starting to experiment with the applications. And so there's been an explosion of applications, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. Bitcoin was the first to kind of hang up a shingle as a business. And now there's Litecoin and Monero and Dash and Dogecoin. These are kind of the basic applications, stable coins, DeFi, NFTs. You'll hear these in the press. But then under that, you have a network or infrastructure layer. These are the data centers um, that store the digital ledgers or that mine the cryptocurrencies, the semiconductor manufacturers that provide the chips. Um, you have blockchain platforms, and these are essentially smart contract platforms. So you'll hear about Ethereum or Polkadot or Cardano. And these are essentially decentralized computers that allow blockchain developers to create new blockchain applications like NFTs and DeFi. And then around this, you have an ecosystem of exchanges, brokers, investment funds, software developers, custodians, and wallets. You know, very similar to the structure of, of how the internet's evolved. You have you know, the networking protocol, the infrastructure, which are the data centers and the, the cloud web services. And then you have the, the application layer, you know, your Amazons of the world or your, you know, your Googles of the world that provide search. And then you have an entire ecosystem of, of players around the internet um, that allow you to you know, trade internet stocks or invest in internet companies, et cetera, et cetera. So the crypto market today has exploded into an economy of companies, applications, infrastructure, and ecosystem players that all serve this growing new blockchain and cryptocurrency industry and this, and this application network that allows us to transfer value in a new way. So can you drill it down a bit more? Like how do I really think of this industry landscape when it comes to equities and size? Okay. And, and again, again I, I look at this from an investment perspective. There's three buckets here. Um, the obvious bucket is the big one that everyone looks at in, in terms of the press, the market for cryptocurrencies. And, you know, not everybody's certainly not at everybody is trading, you know, Bitcoin actively or Ethereum or these cryptocurrencies. But there are about 14,000 today. Uh, the market capitalization just touched three trillion the other day. It's about two and a half trillion today. And it's, it's much smaller than traditional, you know, U.S. equities are 45 trillion. The Nasdaq is 20 trillion. Gold is about 10 trillion. So still very small. And, you know, Bitcoin dominates that two and a half trillion. It represents about 40%. But there's about 150 billion in daily volume that's traded daily amongst these 14,000 cryptocurrencies. The top 10 represent 80% of the market. But these commodities trade on global public markets that are, that are open. They're unregulated largely today. But that represents, you know, almost $3 trillion in market capitalization. Then the second bucket would be the equity market. Um, you have private equity and public equity. The private equity market is, is quite hard to size, um, but over $20 billion in venture capital investment have gone into this this year alone. And that's equivalent to the $20 billion that's gone into to blockchain and cryptocurrencies over the last 10 years in terms of venture capital. So this is like similar to traditional private equity. You have a, you know, an explosion of startups. Uh, they're either enterprises or, or even decentralized organizations that are experimenting with blockchain technology. And there are thousands and thousands of companies that are doing this. And then the third bucket would be the public markets. And in the public markets, you know, there are a growing number of equities 
that play in this industry. Some of them are infrastructure players like miners. Some of them are application players like exchanges. Um, we're tracking about 100 equities right now in public markets. Most of those are in North America. Uh, the current market cap for those is about $300 billion. And the long tail of this 80% are less than a billion. But we've seen about half a dozen new companies go public this year, all over a billion dollars in market cap, you know, representing about 50% of that entire 300 billion of publicly traded assets. Um, you know, the Bitcoin miners are a big category here. There are about 25 miners amongst those 100 equities, and they represent a market capitalization of, a bill, of $100 billion. So that's about 30% of the total market cap of public equities tied to this industry. And, and that's just the public Bitcoin miners. There are two-thirds more miners out there that are private that are actively mining Bitcoin. Um, you know, there are, other, there are other avenues for investment in the public markets. Um, there's the derivative market. It's quite, it's quite small still. It's about $2 billion in notional value that's traded uh, quarterly. And then there are a growing number of funds. Um, you know, there are ETFs in Canada for, for Bitcoin and, e and Ethereum. And, uh, you know, a Bitcoin ETF was, was just recently approved for the first time in the U.S. market. Um, ETFs represent about $2 billion in, in market cap. And then there are closed-end funds that trade publicly, you know, companies like Grayscale that have um, closed-end funds that trade on the market. I believe Grayscale's market cap right now is about uh, $12 billion. Uh, but don't quote me on that. Check the quote. That's a lot of information, Deepak, and certainly clearly a lot of change in that marketplace. Maybe just talk us through some of the risks, maybe both of the cycles that we've seen in crypto and any other considerations that you think are worthwhile talking about here. Sure, Camilla, thanks. And, and risk is really, really important to talk about. Uh, and it goes hand in hand with return and in investing, as you probably all know. Um, the two biggest risks uh, for, for this industry and in investing here are very, very common to technology innovation. And again, this is where a technology lens really helps understand and make sense of investing in this industry. The first is, is technology maturity. Scalability and security are the biggest issues facing, facing blockchain technology today. You often hear people citing the transaction volumes of Bitcoin at 300,000 a day you know, versus Visa or, or a credit card company that does 150 million transactions per day. Clearly, this technology still has to, to improve in terms of its scalability to serve mainstream markets. And then you'll also read about hacks. You know, um, Mt. Gox was hacked and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of, of cryptocurrencies were stolen. Uh, that was several years ago, but there was also a hack uh, earlier this year um, that also resulted in, in hundreds of millions of dollars lost. So security is a big issue. Cryptocurrencies are bearer instruments. It's like cash. If you lose it or someone steals it, it's gone. So, so the technology has a, a long way to go. Um, the other big risk here is, is regulation. And, and you know, typical with other technology, Innovation often happens far faster than regulatory um, involvement and maturity, um, and cryptocurrency is no different. And, and right now, the regulators look at these cryptocurrencies and they, and they struggle to decide, are they commodities? Are they securities? How should they fall under existing regu regulations? Do we need new regulations? But the bottom line here is uh, regulators and, and governments, you know, even in this decentralized world, they have a, an obligation to protect consumers, to protect investors. Um, to protect the integrity of, of, of the markets, financial markets in particular, you know, with transparency, preventing financial crime, and also to prevent against systemic risks. And, and you know, the great financial crisis or global financial crisis was a big example of, of the need for proper regulation. So, you know, there have been 200 years worth of evolution in securities regulation and in traditional financial markets. And in the crypto world, we're just trying to figure out how regulation should apply. And, and that's a big requirement 
for this industry and a big risk as well, because, you know, if these cryptocurrencies are considered securities um, and fall under existing regulations, many of the ecosystem players have to change their businesses dramatically to comply with those existing regulations. So that represents a risk to the market. But this is, again, this is part and parcel with technology innovation in my view. And I think that these issues in time can be solved, you know, but, but if you think about it in technology, we're still trying to understand the regulatory implications and the externalities that we need to protect against with social media, with the sharing economy or with ad tech in terms of privacy protection or protecting against misinformation and other implications of the internet that we didn't, we didn't anticipate years ago when the internet first started. So it's a little bit more critical in the financial industry because of the, of the integration of global financial markets. But I think these risks, they're, they're large today and they should decline over time. But I think that they result in, they, can, they will and can result in volatility in this market. And, and that too is, is not dissimilar from technology innovation. Um, and Gartner was a, it was a good one to kind of um, coin the hype cycle where we tend to overestimate the impact of technology in the near term and underestimate the impact of technology in the long term. And what this results in is, is very volatile cycles. And we've seen multiple cycles in the cryptocurrency market. Um, the most recent one being in, in 2017, where commodities like cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin went from $10,000 or $5,000 to $20,000 in the span of months, and then corrected back to, to $3,000. And then the cycle resumed. Um, but similar to, to other cycles in technology innovation, with each cycle, more capital is drawn in to fuel innovation. And that innovation matures the technology. It raises awareness amongst regulators. It forwards the application space and the uses, the usage. And as that cycle repeats, the technology matures. And, and, and ultimately, or eventually, if this innovation is real and valuable and builds a better mousetrap than what's existing today, then those markets and those technologies can enter the mainstream. And, and that's kind of the long-term view that I have of this industry. We're, we're still in very, very early innings, but um, there's a potential here for a better mousetrap to be built in value transfer and storage. And there is a profound potential for, for this technology to change the way uh, we transact and store value and exchange value and govern um, value and ownership that can be much more efficient and automated. But, but that story has yet to be written and um, perhaps for another podcast. Deepak, it's great to get your perspective on risk. It's a really important piece of the overall market there. But maybe on our last question, but can you drill down into the miners? I know that's a really big question, but giving us a snapshot of what we need to understand here would be useful. Okay, great. Yeah, you know, miners, and I, I think it's important that you ask the question because uh, there are a lot of miners in the public markets. They're raising a lot of money. Investors are really looking at miners and miners are seen as kind of the picks and shovels of, of this ecosystem. Similar to how, you know, investors in the early days of the internet, they bought the companies that laid down fiber optic cable or that provided networking equipment. And the miners perform that essential function for decentralized blockchains. They validate the transactions and they write the new transactions to this decentralized ledger. And the reason we can trust the miners is because they compete with each other through the investment of their capital to earn the right to write to the distributed ledger of the blockchain. And they are compensated for that if they win their competition. And uh, that keeps the, the network honest because if they, if they act as bad actors when they validate transactions on the blockchain, they lose that investment. And that's essentially how the game theory of mining works. In the Bitcoin world, um, that game is played through mathematical calculations. It requires the investment in data centers 
And those calculations are used to determine who earns the right to write the next block. And then the Bitcoin network rewards newly minted coins to the miner that earns that right. And that provides the incentive for the miners to act uh, honestly. And that keeps the Bitcoin network trustable. And it you know, has earned Bitcoin's trust over the last you know, 10, 11 years um, to trust over you know, $1.5 trillion worth of, of, of value to transact or hold on that network. And you know, that's essentially how mining works. But it's, it's, you know, it's very different from gold mining. Uh, I don't know if we, we have time to get into the analogy. But you know, whereas you know, gold miners look for gold deposits around the world and invest in mining equipment to extract gold from, from the earth so that central banks can store their, some of their reserves in, in, a, in a more stable currency. It's cryptocurrency miners or Bitcoin miners. They invest in data center equipment to solve calculations to earn newly minted Bitcoin. They also trend, you know, validate the transactions on the blockchain network, and they store that Bitcoin you know, as a digital gold and as a potential hedge against inflation or a store of value, or even given the expectations of, of Bitcoin to rise, they might look at that as a good return on investment. But you know, I think we could probably spend an entire podcast on cryptocurrency mining, and it's probably worthwhile because that's an important area of evolution. But in, in, in absence of that, in, in this time frame, I did want to leave investors with, with an important thought that I tell every investor that I speak to that's looking to invest in this industry. It really is um, in early stages of technology development maturity you know, from a technology perspective and a regulatory perspective. And you know, my view here is, is when you invest in this sector, you really have to think like uh, a venture capitalist investing in, in traditional ventures. They're very, very early stage. So there's a lot of high potential return, but there's also a lot of risk. It's very, very hard to predict winners and losers at this stage. And a diversified approach is best because you don't know out of the 10 investments you make, which of the seven or eight or nine will fail or which of the one or two might be home runs to make up for all those failures. And you know the approaches of VCs have, have been technology-driven or entrepreneur-driven, you know, trust in the, in the visionary or diversity-driven. But these are all very important concepts for, for investors investing in this sector. And, and the last one I would leave you with is, is a multidisciplinary nature. Because cryptocurrencies are security-like and commodity-like, and each of these blockchain applications or cryptocurrencies you know, function in competitive markets with each other and with traditional applications, you know, if, if it's a decentralized exchange that's it's competing with a crypto exchange and a traditional equity exchange that's starting to offer Bitcoin trading, as the case may be, these are competitive markets. And they also touch on different disciplines like technology financial services, even currency investing, which I know, Camilla, is, is close to your heart, um, or, or, or general commodity investing. So it often takes a multidisciplinary approach or mindset when trying to understand these new cryptocurrencies or blockchain applications and um, bringing in expertise from financial services and, and currency investing and commodity investing can often help in determining the supply de- demand dynamics and the pricing dynamics of these new assets. So I think that's the best approach to managing the risks uh, and returns in, in this industry. And, you know, there's, there's always a place for this type of investing in a, in a diversified portfolio. Uh, it's small. I mean, you don't want to put grandma's, as they say, grandma's retirement savings and, you know, all into Bitcoin or all into a single bet on a cryptocurrency. But it's certainly an exciting space that has significant value potential for the future that has, uh, you know, growing legitimacy and a growing ability for you know, anyone, frankly, to, to invest in, um, you know, whether it's through your cell phone or through your regulated cryptocurrency exchange. 
depack. There is a lot to unpack here. And I agree with you, probably don't want to put all of grandparents' savings into this. But at the same time, it's a really interesting space. And you were able to walk us through and explain a lot of important details about it. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Camilla. I appreciate the opportunity. That was Deepak Kauzel, Managing Director, Technology at BMO Capital Markets. BMO Capital Markets is proud to deliver thoughtful analysis of upcoming equity research trends that will prove important to clients' investment decisions through both this In Tune podcast, as well as our commodity-specific Metal Matters, hosted by Colin Hamilton. If you enjoyed today's In Tune podcast, please do subscribe and rate it. Thanks for listening to Intune, presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Intune on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast providers. Or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more podcasts. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. To access our full disclosures, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure.